This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Dr. Barbo, how are you? Uh, I'm good. It's been a busy week in my house, like lots of our listeners. Uh, my little one went went back to school this this week, so that's been stressful, but the podcast has been keeping us busy, hasn't it? <laughs> That's right. For the people who want to get an inside look at what it takes to record the incubator, this is our second take for this episode because we did record it the first time and there were some issues with the recording. So here we are uh, re-recording. So um, I think what it means for the audience is going to be a more polished <laughs> episode, a more flushed out discussion. Hopefully, <laughs> uh, But you know, consistency at all costs. We are not missing a week. At least we're, not we're really not. Yeah, we're doing everything we can, aren't we? <laughs> so this this week's uh, list of episodes is, of um, I'm sorry of journals and articles is quite interesting, mm -hmm. and there's so many of them. We should not waste too much time, and we should try to get right into it. So um, the first paper uh, and the the first uh, article I wanted to talk about was a very significant article that was published in the Lancet, and. It was uh, published online on August 3rd, um, and it's called Hypothermia for Moderate or Severe Neonatal Encephalopathy in Low-Income and Middle-Income Countries, a Randomized contro Controlled Trial in India, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. The list of authors is very long. It's mm -hmm. the Helix Trial, and it's a list of authors that comprises the Helix Consortium. So what was very interesting is that the um, objective of the paper was to examine whether therapeutic hypothermia initiated within six hours of birth and that lasted like a normal protocol for 72 hours reduced death or disability at 18 to 22 months when compared with usual care. And really the uh, reason why this question was posed was because of the fact that this would happen in the context of a low and middle income country rather than in the US where obviously the, the, the context at least is, is different. Um, the, um, the, the, the trial, the Helix trial was, um, a, uh, randomized, uh, open label multi-country trial that involved India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and the units that were participating <clears throat> were what we would consider level three units. They were, they had uh, a lot of, um, mm -hmm. tools at their disposal to care for these babies. Um, in the paper, they do mention that they all had, uh, capabilities for assisted ventilation cardiovascular monitoring and support, and they had uh, Tesla MRIs, and they had nitric oxide, and so on and so forth. And so I think this is the first thing that we wanted to uh, discuss was the fact that this paper, despite the fact that it's taking place in low and middle income uh, countries, it was very uh, thoroughly and, and rigorously designed, very thoroughly and rigorously conducted, and the methodology was very sound. They included babies who were born at 36 weeks of gestation or later, and that weighed 1.8 kilos or more within six hours of birth. And their eligibility criteria involved two parameters, the first one being the need for continued resuscitation at five minutes of age, 
an APGAR score of less than six at five minutes or the uh, or both or an absence of crying by five minutes of age. The second parameter was evidence of moderate or severe encephalopathy at any time assessed between one and six hours by the clinician using a sort of modified SARNAT scoring system to um, assess for pot potential encephalopathy. And so the first thing that pops to the attention of the reader is the fact that there's no metabolic acidosis component. And we'll get into that. This was done purposefully by the group because some of these babies were born at outside or outlying hospitals or in the home. And they did not want to have to exclude potential babies because of the delay in uh, transfer uh, to the tertiary care center. Um, the babies were assigned to um, either therapeutic hypothermia, which looked very similar to what we're used to do here in the US and around the world, which was uh, cooling of the patient using whole body sort of uh, cooling device that was actually uh, a device used uh, from the UK uh, to 33.5 degrees uh, Celsius for 72 hours with automated rewarming at 0.5 degrees Celsius per hour uh, on a servo controlled sort of device. The um, babies who were in the control group received what they called usual neonatal care, which uh, included mechanical ventilation, um, inotropes, avoidance of iatrogenic hyperthermia by restricting the use of overhead irradiant warmers during resuscitation where possible and setting lower threshold in the servo-controlled warmers, which means they were trying not to make them warmer than they needed to be, but they were not also getting cooled to the, to the, to the temperature that would meet criteria for uh, therapeutic hypothermia. And obviously, they would correct any metabolic or coagulative derangements. Yeah, that's that is a that's an interesting point. Um, is that I mean, they really went out of their way to prevent hyperthermia, which we know is um, a a big predictor of even poorer outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so they they then followed these babies at eighteen to twenty two months of age, and they um, and they gave they put them through the Bailey. Um, the third edition of the Bailey, and, and assess their, their long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. Um, the primary outcome was death or moderate or severe disability. And just for the purpose of being thorough, they define severe disability as any of the following, cognitive score of less than 70 on the Bailey, a gross motor function classification system level three to five, a profound hearing impairment requiring hearing aids or a cochlear implant or blindness. Then they had a moderate disability, which was defined as a cognitive composite score of 70 to 84, and one or more of either a gross motor function classification system two, hearing impairment with no amplification, or a persistent seizure disorder, disorder assessed at 18 to 22 months of age. So they had a large number of babies, 408 infants were randomly assigned. And most of them actually uh, turned out to be from the, mm -hmm. from the units in India. So 347 from the units in India, 33 in Bangladesh, and 28 in Sri Lanka. 202 infants were assigned to the therapeutic hypothermia group. 206 were allocated to the control group. And the, um, the primary outcomes was uh, available for 97% of the people in the hypothermia group versus 97% uh, in the control infant group. And again, remember, these are outcomes at 18 to 22 months of age. So that's really good. Yeah, amazing. The, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. the mean age at follow-up is about 20 months. And the outcomes were death or moderate or severe disability occurred in 50% of infants in the hypothermia group versus 47% in the control group. And then of the 17 predefined secondary outcomes... Eight differed significantly between the groups, but all were worse in the hypothermia group. 
And these you can mm -hmm. find in table three of the paper, and they involved intracranial hemorrhage, gastric bleeding, persistent hypotension, pulmonary hemorrhage, PPHN, prolonged blood coagulation, culture-positive sepsis, neck cardiac arrhythmias, rhombocytopenia, metabolic acidosis, renal failure, pneumonia, subcutaneous fat necrosis, hospital stay, length of hospital stay, death before discharge, and abnormal neurological exam um, after at the time of discharge. And so these are the these are the main results, and I want to give Daphna a chance to uh, say what she thought. I want to read the last part of the abstract, which is the interpretation of their results, because it is extremely, it's very strongly worded, right? They said, mm -hmm. therapeutic hypothermia did not reduce the combined outcome of death or disability at 18 months after neonatal encephalopathy in low-income and middle-income countries, but significantly increased death alone. Therapeutic hypothermia should not be offered as treatment for neonatal encephalopathy in low-income and middle-income countries, even when tertiary neonatal intensive care facilities are available. I was baffled by this type of words and, and this the way the, 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 the conclusion is worded in the paper that is so influential as The Lancet. And so I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were, Daphne. Yeah, well, I think everybody is right. First prerogative is to, to do no harm. So, you know, obviously, I think the findings were not what they anticipated. I was a little disappointed, not by the paper, because I, like you said, I think they did a tremendous job. Their follow-up was impeccable. Um, and I was just kind of disappointed at the outcomes because, you know, it's unfortunate that depending on where babies are born, that outcomes can be so different. But I, I do think there's some things, you know, for us to really look about, look at. The first thing is that this was a very sick cohort of babies. So they excluded all the mild babies. It sounds like they probably excluded some moderate babies. The average cord uh, pH for, um, for the hypothermia group was 6.94 and the average for the control control group was 6.97. So they didn't use it as an inclusion criteria, but they did report it on the babies who had it, which wasn't all mm -hmm. the babies. Um, but the babies were quite sick. Um, and, you know, one of the other major findings is um, the clinical seizures. So 74% right. of babies in the cooling group and 73% of babies in the control group had clinical seizures at random assignment. So that's upon arrival to the tertiary center, you know, really within those, those kind of critical first critical hours. So I, what that tells me is that um, these babies were very sick or potentially that they even had, um, you know, an in utero insult um, that may not have been uh, helped by therapeutic hypothermia to begin with. So that's definitely something we have to think about. I was going to say that this is the, this is, it's interesting that you're bringing this point up because we didn't talk about the MRI findings, right? I mean, I right. wanted to really discuss the primary outcomes, but right. um, they, um, they only found in the uh, in the MRI that was done at about 14 days of, of age, 21% of the infant in the hypothermia group and 26% uh, in the control group all had basal ganglia or thalamic injury, which is what we most often expect Looks to see for. in babies with right. HIE. And so like you said, could that be that their pathology was radically different? Um, and so could that explain some of their findings? I think that's a very good point. They do mention that in the discussion too. Yeah, absolutely. And we and we know from the major cooling trials that the babies with the most um, severe encephalopathy um, still had poor outcomes, even when they were offered therapeutic hypothermia. Um, and so maybe potentially some of those uh, 
moderate babies or the star not two babies who um, don't appear as sick initially, um, maybe, you know, they weren't transferred uh, because of the, the resources that, that, that they were having to work under. The other thing that they mention um, is about home births, which there weren't um, that many um, home births, but there were some. Um, but even more so than that, they had uh, babies born at another hospital. So babies that had to be transported in to these kind of tertiary care centers. So 67% of babies in the hypothermia group and 67% of babies in the control group were all born at another hospital. And we all know that even here, you know, for example, where we are in the States, that a lot can happen um, during resuscitation and transport before a baby gets to a major center. So I think all of those things are things we have to consider when we when we think about this cohort. The other thing about the cooled babies, the babies who received hypothermia, is that they had a, a, a not insignificant amount of adverse events. Um, and we all know that cooling comes with some risks, um, but you know, I, these adverse events were in greater numbers than we saw in some of the major cooling trials. And so again, that may speak to the severity of babies that were transferred um, or potentially, you know, how the cooling was done. Did the babies get too cold? I don't know. Um, but I, I was surprised to see how it kind of impressive those, uh, those events were. And so something else for us to think about. I think what I take away from the paper um, is not necessarily that we shouldn't be doing it. Again, I, I we live in a very resource rich area, so we're quite lucky. So, it, you know, I, I'm able to say that without having to to deal with those consequences. But that um, maybe there are ways that we can, you know, advocate for better distribution of. Um, education and resources, and especially to kind of those outlying areas where a lot of these babies were born before they could get to higher levels of care. And that's not so different than some places even here in the States or in other very um, well-developed countries um, where we have babies born at facilities that weren't anticipating to have a really sick baby, um, but they still have to care for them and then, uh, you know, equip the transport team. And so a lot happens in those first few hours of life that really changes outcomes. So for me, the major takeaway, especially being at a place where we get a lot of referrals um, and we do transport is that you know, we, we got to um, educate our kind of community providers um, and see how we can optimize those those first few hours, teaching good resuscitation and, um, you know, optimization and transport. What about you? Well, I, I agree with, with what you're saying. And I think it's an interesting paper because it, it brings really a counter argument to all the other papers like the Toby trial and um, the NICHD trial. Um, really saying that therapeutic hypothermia did not work in this cohort. Now, like you mm -hmm. said, I think it's a very, it's a very peculiar, a very singular sort of population. They have a lot of different constraints, like you said, the, the outlying hospitals, the home births. But I can see, though, some scenarios in which even, like you said, even for us in the U.S., we could be placed in, the simi in similar mm -hmm. situations. I was actually talking to one of the obstetricians at our hospital who said that because of COVID, a lot of mothers have been reluctant to come to the hospital for delivery sure. and have even considered like home births. So you would literally find yourself in a similar, yeah, more than usual, in a similar right. position. 
Right. And and then could these results then apply to us as well? Because we tend to think, oh, because it's it's a low-income country, then that doesn't apply. That's not true. So right. it's going to be interesting to see more than the paper itself. I think what they're showing is, is an eye-opening, as our eye-opening findings, but it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of, of this study. And uh, where does the pendulum go from here? <laughs> yeah, especially, you know, since, since you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of big groups are looking at more mild cases, uh, earlier, uh-huh. you know, lower gestational age, smaller babies. So it's really um, kind of a dichotomy <laughs> of what's going on here, you know, from one place to the, to the other. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing to what those other trials bring. Um, and, and again, I, I still took a lot from this a lot from this paper yeah. for us to work yeah. on. So, all right. So let's jump. Let's continue. And uh, which which other article? Uh, which article did you want to go to next? Well, I guess if we're talking about kind of long term developmental things, um, I think it would be reasonable to go uh, to this uh, paper entitled "Preterm or Early Term Birth and Risk of Autism." Um, uh, primary author, uh, Dr. Casey Crump. Um, so this was a, a cohort um, looking at uh, the Swedish Medical Birth Registry um, in conjunction um, with Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Um, so the goal of this study was to really um, identify the risk of autism spectrum disorder, um, in particular uh, with early early births and looking at gestational age and risk of um, autism spectrum disorder. They also looked at sex. They also looked at um, uh, co-sibling analysis to look at some of those other parameters. So in this national cohort, they looked at over 4 million um, infants uh, born in Sweden during 1973 Uh, and 2013, who survived to age one year. And then they followed using um, some of their other national um, outpatient registries um, into year 2015. Uh, So kind of the average um, length of follow-up, the median length of follow-up was 21 and a half years. Uh, The maximum length of follow-up was 43 years. Um, And so they did that because obviously the the uh, way that we have been diagnosing um, ASD uh, has changed significantly um, in the in the last two decades. Um, and so they report that um, they were using the ICD-9, which began uh, documenting ASD codes in 1987. Um, so they followed that that cohort, even though some people were born much earlier than those ICD-9s, but to see if they... Um, you know, triggered an ICD-9 code um, in in some of their outpatient stays later in life. Yeah, I think they followed them up to like 20 years of age. So mm-hmm. so even if the ICD-9 code had not been there, like right. when they were two years of age, they should have, like you said, triggered it over the course of those 20 years. So that, that really gave them enough room, I think. Yeah, so they were particularly interested, like I said, in those preterm infants. And so what they found, um, that preterm infants in general were more likely than term infants to be male, uh, more likely to be firstborn, more likely to have a family history of ASD. Their mothers and fathers were more likely to be at the extremes of age, and they had lower education level, and their mothers were more likely to have other uh, medical comorbidities, high BMI, preeclampsia, hypertensive disorders, um, and diabetes. 
And then when they looked at the group uh, as a whole, um, they found that uh, ASD was identified in 1.4% um, of, the, of their group. Um, and that's pretty similar to previous reports of uh, autism spectrum disorder in Sweden. Um, and just for comparison, for like our listeners here in the US, um, our rates are about one in 54 to one in 56, which is 1.7 or 1.8%. So pr pretty consistent. And then they split the babies up um, by kind of gestational age. Um, and, and again, the graphs I thought were, were pretty useful. So hopefully we'll be able to demonstrate some of those. But the ASD prevalences were 6.1% for the extremely preterm, 2.6% for the very to moderate preterm, 1.9% for the late preterm, 2.1% uh, for all preterm compared with 1.4% for term babies. And then they looked at a number of covariates. Um, again, there's a lot of data in this paper, and, and a bunch of the papers that we're reviewing today are just packed with data, so they may take some more individual um, review. But even after adjusting for these covariates um, that are frequently associated with preterm birth, the numbers were um, decreased but still increased uh, by decreasing gestational age. So meaning that the younger you are um, at the time of delivery, the earlier gestational age, the higher your risk for autism spectrum disorder. Um, and they did an analysis to show that it was about um, each additional week of gestation was associated with a 5% lower prevalence of ASD on average. So I, I thought that was actually a pretty impressive, very useful kind of piece of the data to have. They also looked at other um, comorbidities, in particular attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, which um, has also been reported in the literature to be more common in the preterm uh, population. And what they found was actually um, they looked at the comorbidity with ASD and they found that 40.7% um, of people diagnosed with ASD also had attention deficit hyperactivity uh, disorder. And then they looked at it again, um, just in the preterm population, 8.4% of ADHD for the extremely preterm, 4.7 for moderate to very preterm, 3.6 for late preterm, um, as compared to 2.8 for uh, term births. Um, so, so certainly both autism spectrum disorder and ADHD are more common uh, the earlier uh, in gestation you are delivered, and not surprisingly that they're frequently found um, as comorbidities, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, along with autism spectrum disorder. So, um, a lot of data in this paper. I thought this was really interesting. Um, parents are asking us about it. You know, it's very um, common, um, certainly in the kind of lay internet. And so it's, I feel like one of the more questions that I get these days is, will my baby have um, autism? The one mm -hmm. thing they didn't discuss was, um, you know, any association with intraventricular hemorrhage. So, you know, I'd like to see that data. But um, I think that, you know, we owe it to parents to add these sorts of things to our anticipatory guidance, at least near discharge, uh, you know, at least sometimes just so that parents have that information that they can be sure to get their follow-up. Um, and that, you know, it's something certainly for general pediatricians to be looking for. Right. I think um, 
It was a very interesting paper, right? It's, it's we know that preterm babies are at a high risk of developing autism, but this paper really by grouping it in terms of gestational age, and like you said, those graphs are pretty impressive in the way that the slope of the increase towards a higher frequency of autism in lower gestation babies is is it's it's staggering. Mm-hmm. Um, it also provides, I think, a little one more piece to the puzzle of trying to understand the origins of autism. I think this is really one of the big questions of the 21st century, trying to really understand how does that come about. And I think that by showing that there's certain gestational ages that are more at risk, um, it could be due, obviously, to the fact that these babies are quite sicker. But if there is anything in the development of the brain that happens at a certain amount of weeks in gestation that could explain uh, what we're seeing later in childhood, well, I think that's that's a terrific stepping stone for a lot of the other researchers who are mm-hmm. looking into this topic. And, and like you said, I really appreciate it. And I circle that, that sort of uh, pieces of the article that said each additional week of gestation is associated with a 5% lower prevalence of autism spectrum disorder on average. These are the type of, of things that you can just copy paste and use in any prenatal consult. And like you said, the, these are things that parents would like to know and we should be here for them with the data uh, when they ask. So yeah, overall, a terrific paper. Yeah, I think um, certainly a, a jumping point for um, autism research, but but also you know something else for us to target in kind of our developmental interventions in the NICU. So Mm-hmm. I liked it. I was glad to read it. Yeah. Um, let's let's change topics a little bit. I mean, um, I think before we move on to another, there was a, a bunch of other very important mm-hmm. papers. I want to bring up this paper from uh, the Acta Pediatrica. It's, it's not really a paper. It's called a brief report, and it's called Neonatal Resuscitation in the NICU, mm-hmm. Challenges Beyond NRP. Uh, this was a study uh, done out of... Um, Haifa in Israel and in coordination with uh, Dr. Uh, Karen Levy-Nivo from uh, from Boston, from uh, Boston Children's Hospital. What was interesting in that brief report is that this, this group asked the question, what is the more used form of or algorithm of resuscitation used in the neonatal ICU, considering that we're sort of in between two places where we're supposed to use an RP, but then babies stay in the NICU for a certain amount of time. So then should we move on to PALS? And are we even using PALS? Are we using a hybrid? So they decided to try to see if this was uh, as much of an issue as they perceived it to be. And so they sent um, surveys across all 25 level three and level four NICUs in Israel, asking them about um, their their recent codes and and what would they do to and what type of interventions that they uh, that they used. And so it was a it was a very um, it was a very thorough I think uh, survey. It contained uh, twenty questions, and so all the physicians of each institution was asked to to fill it out. Uh, they received responses from at least a physician from each of the of the twenty uh, of the twenty five NICUs, and they had uh, seventy five out of one hundred and fourteen physicians respond. And it's interesting, right? Because you go over the different reasons for their codes, and it includes a variety of things. The most common one was obviously pneumothoraces. Um, bacteremia, and uh, cardiac tamponade. Mm-hmm. And then they, they go over some of the things that were done, um, needle decompression, et cetera, et cetera. But what was also very interesting is that they looked at the different uh, types of compression algorithms that they use. So they, they found that uh, a compression to ventilation ratio of three to one was used in 87% of cases compared to a uh, 8.6% 8, 8. of other cases where they used a 15 to two ratio, which was sort of more of a, of a PALS sort of uh, 
um, algorithm. And then they looked at other things that could differentiate between PALS and NRP, the compression ventilation synchronization um, was done throughout the resuscitation in 71%, um, but synchronization only prior to intubation was done in 18.3% of the event and no synchronization um, throughout the resuscitation only in 8.4%. So what they what their conclusion was, was that among all the, um, all the respondents, they, they could tell that there was no consensus. And they said that there's, it's, it's a hybrid of, of NRP and PALS, and it begs the question, should we discuss this further? Should we have mm-hmm. an intermediate sort of algorithm to use in the NICU that would satisfy the need of our babies? And more trials are needed to sort of assess what would be the right algorithm for patients who are in the NICU. I thought this was such a relevant article because this is something that I have struggled with in every single NICU I've worked at. There is no, like we, like we always joke about, there's no reason for a baby that received uh, an overdose of morphine to be dried and stimulated when they're not breathing, right? Right. <laughs> it's just, Certainly not. Um, so it doesn't make, it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. And yet we're all NRP certified and we most likely don't follow NRP. We don't do what I just said. We don't try and stimulate the baby when they have a pneumothorax, but yet right. that really brings up the issue of then let's accept that we're either doing PALS or something else, but then let's define that something else. Curious to hear what you thought about that. Yeah. I, I, again, some of the takeaways, um, I thought were impressive, uh, were certainly, uh, for one, how many pneumothoraces were still were still happening, especially outside of the first week of life, and so definitely something for us to remember. Um, some of the other things that are very much a part of the PALS algorithm, uh, you know, your H's, your T's, getting those labs um, were done in the minority of cases. So even things like a glucose um, a hematocrit, things that we could easily fix, um, are obviously not part of the NRP um, algorithm. Um, because, you know, right at the delivery, they're not expected to be that di- that dysregulated, but certainly in our older babies, they are. And then some other opportunities um, using, obviously, transillumination at the bedside um, and echocardiogram, again, also used in the minority of cases. Um, and so I think, like you said, I think it underscores that we, if we are going to be keeping older babies, and nobody knows what that, that threshold is, really is right but but pretty much out of the delivery room um that that should we not all be trained in in pals and and the other thing is that it can't just be the physicians right it has to be the entire staff that would respond to a code because you can ask for whatever you want but if people aren't prepared to give it or aren't familiar <laughs> right. with it then then you're not going to yeah. get it um and so I think I think it was really helpful. I mean, most of most of the codes were using a combination, anyways, and so um, it which is it what we what, which is what we all do anyway, right? That's it's how just- it exactly. <laughs> I, I felt I felt that I, you know we would have answered pretty much um, in a similar so, manner for sure. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Which which paper are we going to next? So I actually, you know, we're trying to we're trying to cover all sorts of papers. So I thought this quality improvement paper um, we can at least discuss. We have lots of um, listeners who do QI work, um, and so this um, was published in the Journal of Pediatric Quality and Safety. Um, it's called Improving Compliance with a Rounding Checklist Through Low and High Technology Interventions, a Quality Improvement Initiative. Um, lead author, Leah Carr. 
Um, and so what they aimed to do was really do kind of a quality uh, care uh, questions Um you know, each day of the week that targeted different uh, parameters of an infant's care. So this was a questionnaire that the group was already using, um, but they weren't getting a lot of use out of it. Um, so what they did is a number of PDSA cycles to see if they could improve the use. Um, and I think there is some actually pretty important points in, in this paper that, you know, I'd like to cover. So basically what they had is this kind of hard copy checklist that they had at the computers where the teams were doing the work, but not necessarily where the teams were doing the rounding. Um, they didn't, weren't bringing it to, to bedside. So they started um, in about November of 2018, um, where they initiated their first five PDSA cycles. Um, and that is when they made those kind of low-tech interventions. So they brought in a human factors engineer um, to make design modifications on the checklist itself. Um, I didn't know it, these existed, by the way. That's right. I, I mean, <laughs> that's why our kind of cross-discipline um, interactions are so important. Important because these are the human factors engineers are being used in all kinds of other places in business, in aerospace, in, you know, uh, project management. And so we, we got to get them into, into medicine for sure. So what they did is they changed up the questionnaire. They made the questions shorter, easier to read, used abbreviated keywords. Um, they changed the color. And I think Probably most importantly is that they moved the location from the desk um, to to on to kind of the rounding computers, um, and so those were their first PDSA cycles. Is making those cha those changes, and they have their um, graph um, looking uh, at at those changes over time. And then the sixth PDSA cycle in October two thousand nineteen, so nearly a year later, um, was actually kind of integrating the tool with their um, EMR. So they used rule-based logic to present relevant daily questions to care teams based on patient status and day of the week, which I thought was really cool. So um, it auto-populated kind of hard stops uh, with appropriate questions and the right responses whenever possible. So, for example, they said if the baby didn't have central access, the tool would auto-populate with not applicable when they had to discuss central line, but it did prompt them to at least uh, discuss it or not. Um, and then uh, basically for each baby, they could have a, a separate um, flow sheet that looked to see if the check marks uh, for each of the quality kind of indicators uh, were done for the week. Something they did that was not part of a PDSA cycle, but I imagine still played an important role because I've seen that in the units where, where I have uh, practiced is that um, starting in about February of 2019, um, kind of right in the middle of their uh, low tech interventions, they really started pushing out the messaging to the staff. Staff and nursing leaders announced reminders during the daily unit-wide and nursing morning huddles. Um, and I think um, this is always an important part of QI, getting the rest of the team um, engaged. And it, and it certainly looked like that helped them somewhat. Um, 
one part of their meth, their methods and kind of time frame is unfortunately, um, this obviously was occurring right at the time as the COVID-19 pandemic was, um, was becoming such a big disruption to our medical care system. And so they talk about COVID-19. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> It's too soon, too soon. <laughs> so they talk about how that affected um, their uh, their outcomes, but I actually think that they were still able to do a great job with the with this project despite that. So um, some of their major findings um, is that uh, they looked at what were the initial barriers to, to getting the checklist done. The number one barrier was that nobody could remember what the items were or when to do it or on which babies to do it, which I think is a huge barrier. They had rounding interruptions, which I'm sure we are all sensitive to. Um, and one of the smaller percentages was perceived lack of question relevance to, to patients. And they looked at their average completion. So before their interventions, the average completion um, was about 31%. And then after interventions uh, to 80%. They also looked at average checklist completion time, which obviously time is always a concern for people having to do extra work. Um, And they found that actually over time, their ability to get through the checklist decreased from 46 seconds to 11 seconds. So obviously 11 seconds times, you know, if you've got 20, 25 babies to round on, yeah, adds up, um, but um, certainly improved over time. Um, So they uh, found that their PDSA cycles made a huge difference um, in their ability to use kind of this uh, checklist. But the major point I want to say is, um, you know, we're all working in different kinds of units. But what I was really impressed by is that um, they made a major change in kind of the where they put their rounding checklist. And I think that, and it looks like when they started pushing it out to staff, made a huge difference, um, big, big, big increases in their completion rates, even more so than some of those high-tech interventions, which I thought streamlining it with the EMR is a a brilliant idea. Yeah, doesn't it show that moving the doctors as far away from the EMR is always more efficient? That's right. (laughs) Um, and and yeah, the, the 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 power of the low tech tools, we should it should not be it should not be um, underestimated. I thought I, my thoughts align with yours exactly, and and uh, it's um, it's interesting, right? I mean, even just if you look at that paper and you look at the different items they had on their list, I think it mm-hmm. gives a lot of inspiration as to how to organize your rounds. Um, I'm going to steal some of their items for um, my rounding tool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely a great paper to check out. Yeah, and we can put this graph on here. It's just a good reminder that you don't even have to get the high-tech interventions. You just have to, you know, find what works for you, what works for your unit, get everybody engaged and 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 get get your uh items where people can see them. That's, <laughs> That's right. The big thing. Where do you want to yeah. go? I want to go on that paper about neck versus sip yes. versus laparotomy. That's that's that was such a big we have was such to. a good one. Yeah, so the paper is has a very short title. I'm <laughs> kidding. It's called Initial Laparotomy versus Peritoneal Drainage in Extremely Low Birth Weight Infants with Surgical Necrotizing Enterocolitis or Isolated Intestinal Perforation, a Multicenter Randomized Clinical Trial, period. Um, <laughs> it was published in um, Annals of Surgery. The list of authors is extremely long. This is a paper that was uh, done in coordination, in collaboration with the uh, Neonatal Research Network. So obviously there's a long list of authors. It is a pre-proof um, 
So it should come out um, more formally uh, in the next few weeks. And what was interesting about the paper is that it asked a question that we're all asking ourselves. So this was the NEST trial, and it was designed to be the largest feasible trial evaluating the impact of initial laparotomy versus drainage on the rate of death or neurodevelopmental impairment and whether preoperative diagnosis of neck or SIP affects the outcome. So they uh, did a prospective randomized trial um, conducted at 20 U.S. centers that are all part of the neonatal research network between 2010 and 2017. They included babies who were born at with a birth weight of less than 1,000 grams and that were less than eight weeks of age um, at the time uh, of surgery or at the time to perform surgery for suspected neck or SIP. Um, they... Um, were, um, they, they followed these babies at 18 to 22 months of age, and they used the Bailey Scales of Infant and Toddler mm -hmm. Development, third edition, to assess their long-term outcomes. Um, they had um, some um, very typical definitions of neurodevelopmental impairment, um, and obviously they had moderate to severe. Um, so neurodevelopmental impairment was defined as moderate to severe cerebral palsy, um, Bailey three scores of less than 85, severe bilateral visual impairment, uh, or permanent hearing loss despite um, amplification. Um, they pre-specified a bunch of secondary outcomes, which were um, obviously very comprehensive, intraoperative complication, post-operative complication, number of surgical procedures for each infant, sepsis episodes, uh, duration of TPN, developmental of TPN-related cholestasis, length of, hospitals, of hospital stay, rehospitalization, and each component of the uh, primary outcome. So um, they did something um, that was interesting, right? I mean, is that they, they approached their outcomes as well, the way they presented them. Um, they presented them in the form of either frequentist theories or Bayesian mm -hmm. theories. And I thought that was very interesting. For people who are not familiar, there's two approaches to outcomes. Um, you could use a frequentist method, which basically doesn't take into account too much uh, data on the front end and just forces you to make a guess as to what an outcome is. Or you can use Bayesian um, theories where you take a lot of data and then try to formulate a the most optimal guess that you can based on the data. The um, example that uh, I've always heard is if somebody flips a coin, for example, and you can say, if before you flip the coin, what are the odds that the, the coin will fall heads? And you can say, well, it's 50%. And then if I do flip the coin, but I'm not really showing you the the, the outcome of the of the flip and I tell you well what is what is your answer now a frequentist will say well it's either heads or tails there's no my, it's either hundred percent or zero percent there's no in between because the outcome has happened and it's not really a guess anymore there's an outcome that is out there in the world mm -hmm. and it's either yes or no but the Bayesian person will refine their theories they'll say well there was a 50 percent chance and the fact that you're asking me maybe mean xyz so i will refine my my estimate and i will say that it's maybe 60 percent heads for x or y reason so it's interesting because in the case of neck or sip we try to do the best we can to figure out what is the ideology right we do see pneumatosis you can see free air in the abdomen and you're like is it just a sip or is it neck mm -hmm. and and that could play a huge role depending on what the intervention is and that's what the paper was trying to do so they were able to enroll 310 infants. I hope any of the things I'm saying make sense. They make sense to yeah. me, but I hope it's too. <laughs> <laughs> I think once you talk about the, I think once you get this data, that it, it will even Let's make hope. more sense. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so they had 310 infants that were randomized to either receiving laparotomy or uh, penrose drain placement. And they were able to follow 96% of them at 18 to 22 months. The primary outcome um, occurred in 69% of infants after initial laparotomy, and that is death or neurodevelopmental impairment. So they were noticing death or neurodevelopmental impairment in 69% of infants after laparotomy versus 70% after Penrose drain placement. Mm -hmm. Mortality at 18 to 22 months was 29% overall, 28% with laparotomy, 30% with Penrose placement. When we're looking at things in a more granular way, 94 infants assessed at 22 months with a preoperative diagnosis of neck. Um, so that, so that's, so out of that group specifically, 69% died or had impairment after initial laparotomy versus 85% after drainage. And then they looked at this Bayesian post probability mm -hmm. and they said that the Bayesian post probability that laparotomy resulted in a lower rate of death or impairment than did the Penrose was 97%, which means that in the cases where neck was highly suspected, a laparotomy was beneficial when it comes to the primary outcome 97% of the time. Among the babies who had SIP, um, death or NDI occurred in 69% after initial laparotomy versus 63% with a Penrose placement. And when they did this Bayesian posterior probability, the rate of death or NDI with an initial laparotomy was 18%. Mm -hmm. So a few more results, and then we can we can talk about the um, other outcomes. Mortality occurred uh, at 18 to 22 months, occurred in 46% with a preoperative diagnosis of neck uh, versus 21% with a preoperative diagnosis of SIP. Among infants who were diagnosed with NEC, the mortality was 40% with initial laparotomy versus 51% with a Penrose placement. Among infants with a preoperative diagnosis of SIP, 23% died after laparotomy versus 19% with initial drainage. So before we go into the before we go into the uh, the secondary um, analysis, um, I think the primary outcomes are very important, right? I mean, it's showing us that if with the pre, it's mm -hmm. all hinting at the fact that if you suspect a diagnosis of NEC, placing a Penrose is not going to be beneficial down the road. The laparotomy seems to be more beneficial. Mm -hmm. When the case of SIP, it doesn't seem like the data answers the question, and. Um, at the end of their results, they're, they're also mentioning the fact that among infants who had an initial laparotomy and had the intraoperative diagnosis mm -hmm. uh, data, which was 138 babies, the intraoperative diagnosis was concordant with the preoperative diagnosis in 64% of cases. So I think it's interesting for us to talk about this, right? Because you tend to think, well, you know, I think we can differentiate pretty easily between that right. and SIP. No, it's still not super clear. Right. And with a preoperative diagnosis of NEC, the concordance rate was 78%. And with SIP, it was 59%. And I think this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I think NEC really declares itself when it does pretty uh, clearly, but a SIP can always be misleading, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so in their main conclusion, and I'll let you discuss what your thoughts were, and we can even talk about the, um, about the, uh, the secondary outcomes, but their conclusion was that there was no over overall difference in death or NDI rates at 18 to 22 months corrected age between initial laparotomy versus drainage. However... The preoperative diagnosis of NEC or SIP modified the impact of the initial treatment. Um, all right, I'm going to stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, again, this is another study that enrolled, uh, you know, they had almost a thousand babies that were eligible. They randomized 300 babies. There's a, a whole group of babies that weren't randomized and uh, they, they, 
speak to that, that that um, analysis is coming. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing um, that data, why those babies weren't um, randomized. But regardless, they had these babies and they had pretty good follow-up also with this group even though, you know, these babies were all over the country. So this was quite a collaborative effort um, with obviously some of the major institutions um, here in the state. Um, And, you know, I think uh, talking about some of these secondary outcomes are a piece of the puzzle, right? Because if we just say, well, maybe they're not different, but one has much, much worse outcomes, you know, then we have to pick one over the other. But this, this was not what I anticipated it to show either. So for example, initial laparotomy, so those babies who are, are randomized to surgery versus um, Penrose placement did not increase the time to full feedings, duration of mechanical ventilation, TPN, or length of hospitalization. The total number of operations was similar for treatment groups um, with the initial uh, laparotomy uh, 2 and those babies with initial drainage 2.1. But subsequent laparotomy was performed uh, much more often after the initial drain, uh, 50%. Uh, versus if the baby got a laparotomy first, they only needed, you know, a repeat laparotomy a quarter of the time, which is still a lot of laparotomies, but um, a a pretty big difference. Um, And so, you know, I thought that was um, pretty impressive. I think it, it shows that we need to get better at at deciding what what is our diagnosis, right? And and the truth is sometimes we don't know, um, but all we can do is use the information that we have. I'm hopeful as we um, are better at refining the diagnosis, we can use some new tools. Hopefully ultrasound will be part of our diagnostic criteria um, that, that maybe we will get even better with our kind of preoperative <laughs> diagnosis um, to give us even more information about to do what to do surgically. Um, yeah, I think that was that was what was interesting, right? You, you, we can anticipate articles that says, oh, laparotomy versus Penrose in NEC, right? Right. But this is where it's interesting is that it's SIP or NEC, right. laparotomy or Penrose. And then right. let's do all the math and let's do all the stats. So that was that was really, really cool to be able to say, well, if you believe that it is neck and you are correct, then laparotomy is more beneficial right. or has less negative side effects down the road versus when it is SIP, well, you really don't really know what it is. Your your chance of getting it right is actually very low. And then it is not really clear whether laparotomy is the way to go versus a Penrose. It's just fascinating to mm-hmm. move away from P-values and have this more uncertain uncertainty-centered um, approach. I think a lot of the papers, sometimes you're like, yeah, but I don't know the diagnosis 95% of the time because I'm not sure. And then obviously by the time I do know the diagnosis, it's too late. So to be able to say, well, let's think about the moment where mm-hmm. you don't have all the information and you need to make a call. What would be, where, where do we do good? Where we do, where are we usually, where do, where are our faults? I think that was fascinating. It's a great, great paper. Yeah. And I, and that's how we do medicine, right? We get a little mm-hmm. bit of data and we make a clinical decision. We get a little bit more data and we make another clinical decision. So, you know, at some point in time, our research ha- methods have to reflect. As, as you may have guessed, I'm a Bayesian type of thinker. <laughs> and so I, I could not be happier. And we're very excited that one of our guests is going to be a strong advocate of that, of that, uh, of that mentality and that, and that approach to science. So I'm not going to reveal who that is, but. If you <laughs> but want, we're you know. excited. <laughs> 
Well, I, I'm I'm sensitive to the time, and I know that you want to talk about some of these machine learning papers. Yes. So I, I want to give you the opportunity learning. to do that. So there's two <laughs> papers that we selected yeah. that um, are looking at um, machine learning and artificial intelligence in neonatology. Um, the first one, and we'll talk about this one first, is... Um, it's called it's it has a, it has a has a long title it's in jama it's called automated explainable multidimensional deep learning platform of retinal images for retinopathy of prematurity screening a mouthful gee wang i know if you're if you were barely interested in reading it the title just throws you off right off the bat you're like all right i'm not doing this but um, basically, what they did is that they looked at whether machine learning algorithms could interpret um, pictures of of the retina of done during ROP screening and measure whether that uh, the, the the sort of interpret these images for ROP and they compare that head to head with um, with the the, the reading of uh, of ophthalmologists and so they had uh, fourteen thousand sort of eyes of about eight thousand. Um, preterm infants, and they had a deep learning-based ROP screening platform that could ad- identify retinal images using five classifier, including image quality, stages of ROP, intraocular hemorrhage, pre-plus pl- pre and plus disease, and posterior retina. The platform achieved an area under the curve of 98.3% to 99.8%. That is staggering. And the referral mm-hmm. system, which was that they, if the machine detected a certain threshold, then it would refer f- to an ophthalmologist, had an area under the curve of 99% to 99.56%. I mean, that's just bragging at this mm-hmm. point. <laughs> the platform achieved a Cohen K of 0.86 to 0.98 compared with 0.93 to 0.98 by uh, the ROP experts. So number one, this is really cool because... Oops, sorry. Uh, this is really cool because if you don't know much about artificial intelligence, it's showing you that computers can read images. Just mm-hmm. like you have eyes, they can look at an image and interpret it. Um, and it's not very hard to design. Um, there's a lot of algorithms out there um, that can read images. Uh, it's been done in radiology uh, many in over many, many papers, and you could, you could read that. Before we go to more into the um, machine learning algorithm, we can talk about the um, other article that uh, was published. This one was in BMC Pediatrics, and it's called Neonatal Mortality Prediction with Routinely Collected Data, a Machine Learning Approach. <clears throat> this was a, um, a study out of Brazil, and basically I'm going to explain this rather plainly. They used, they had several machine learning algorithms, which they fed data from 2012 to 2016, and they allowed the machines to train on the different babies, their morbidities, their outcomes, and the machines were trained to learn, uh, were trained to to perform prognostic sort of measurements. And then they used their data from 2017 to actually test the machine. And you can go into the paper; they have tons of different variables. And then they also used another set of variables, which was the which were the ones for. Um, uh, that identify neonatal mortality risk based on the WHO, and that was maternal age, place of delivery, mode of delivery, and weight and gestational age at birth. So they did um, they did go over the different areas under the curve, which was the accurate, which represents pretty much the accuracy of the system. And they had three um, machine learning algorithms: the gradient boosting trees, the light GBM, and the cat boost that achieved respectively ninety seven percent, ninety six percent, and ninety seven percent accuracy. What's interesting is that you can see how 
this paper highlights the importance of good data. Mm -hmm. Obviously, then they, they ran these algorithms with the WHO criteria and the area under the curve was 90.5%. And then they started introducing a bit more data points like the five-minute Abgar and that increased the area under the curve to 95%. Then they added whether the baby had congenital anomalies, that increased to 97%. And so you can see that when you tweak the data, mm -hmm. you can get a system that gets better and better trained. I think this, these are important papers for people to read because I'm not exactly sure when artificial intelligence and machine learning will actually roll out into the NICU. But before that can happen, we're going to need to collect data. We're going to need to collect excellent data because if we want to train the machines to perform calculations that are accurate and precise, they need good data to train on. And you can start seeing out of California, out of Duke, people are publishing what they call... Um, just data registries so that you could use them to train the machine. Right, to practice. But I do feel like you will not really be able to get the best results until you train the machines with your own population. We're mm -hmm. seeing that there's every population is different. So if you train a machine in the US on the outcomes of patients in Japan, well, they, they may not get it perfectly right because there's a lot of inherent difference between the two populations mm -hmm. based on their geographical difference. So I think these are very interesting and you can see that the machines can actually do a pretty good job. The one thing I do want to mention is that the machine learning algorithms that they used in this Brazil study actually gave you two extremes. So they, they gave you like the 5% of the highest risk of mortality. And so for the 5% births with the highest predictor risk of neonatal death, it was including 90% of the patients who had died during the year 2017. And on the other hand, there were no deaths among the 5% birth with the lowest predicted risk. So you could see that the machine on the extremes did extremely, extremely well. And if you think about this from your own perspective and say, well, if I could be told when a baby is admitted, whether they are in the top 5% for neonatal death, I would like to know that because my approach yeah. would probably be different. So it's really, really cool. I get really, uh, I, I geek out on these papers. <laughs> I know you do. And you know, I'm, I'm still having trouble with my eye calendar. So I, <laughs> but, but I understand that this is the, this is the future of medicine, right? And if it, if it mm -hmm. helps us take better care of babies, I was particularly impressed um, by the ROP paper and how well um, that it stood up to, you know, they had a number of experts also read the pictures and, um, how well it stood up to that. I was really impressed by that. And so I think that it can uh, potentially provide more access to care, especially for places who may not have certain resources. I think that's really interesting. I do also think you bring up a good point about um, different kind of um, how do our kind of racial ethnic uh, changes, uh, how does that impact our data sets? And, and, and actually maybe our, our next guest will be able to, to speak to that a little bit, but um, how does that interplay with our ability to use um, artificial intelligence? But it's the future of medicine. Again, all of the other uh, major disciplines uh, in the world are, are using artificial intelligence. And so- Tesla uh, just had a big keynote address where they actually are showing how artificial intelligence is pretty much going to be the, the, the root of the self-driving car. So, I mean, it's, it's coming to us. I think it's very freaky. I'm, I'm doing some, <laughs> some courses in artificial intelligence and to teach a computer to recognize numbers drawn by hand, meaning I could draw a set of numbers and the computer would be like, yeah, you're, you're writing a two now. And it's like, this is very freaky because it knows. you're not really, it just knows, like you're just taking a picture of the image and the computer was like, yeah, that's a three. And even if you scribble it, it's, it's crazy. 
And when you start seeing, and I'm just doing this in my in my bedroom, you can imagine in uh, more advanced uh, laboratories where they actually teach the computers to read X-rays, ultrasounds. Mm -hmm. It's nuts if the if you could take an ultrasound and the machine tells you, yeah, that's that's neck right there. Um, yeah, it's really cool. And. I and mean, sorry, but they, maybe they, yeah. maybe they'll put us out of a job. But if it, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because at the end of the day, uh, the machine is only as good as the. But I mean, listen. At the end of the day, it's a long discussion. I can only <laughs> recommend you can go on YouTube and you can look for the the documentary called AlphaGo, mm -hmm. and it's and it's a documentary that goes over the artificial intelligence that was used to train and and. Um, take on the world champion in the game of Go. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating look into what artificial intelligence can do. And it's a very poetic documentary on the concept of man versus machine. Um, so it's free. I think you can, it's not, not hacked. You can just go type in AlphaGo mm -hmm. on YouTube and it should be there for free. Just take a look at it. It's, it's very, very cool. Even I've heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool. And then when you look at, and I'm sorry to say, but when you look at how much, uh, parameters and a lot of the complexity of of the code and the and the and the algorithms and then you see that they're carrying this in like a laptop right and mm -hmm. they just plug in it's just very very amazing uh, it's cool yeah it's amazing all right there's there's a few more articles that um some of them were pre-proofs but mm -hmm. we can definitely leave them for next time and we'll go over them um i think we went over uh the main articles that we wanted to touch on right well, there's always something. We can't seem to get to everything, can we? <laughs> right. Um, that's fine. I think the articles, we, we, we discussed some very uh, significant articles. Should we do um, a little feedback uh, feedback Sunday? Where Please we do. About some so the highlight of this week um, came from Frank Han, and it was not really a feedback, but it was a response to somebody else on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Caroline Bartman asked the question on Twitter, why are 99% of the podcast interviews with academic scientists I see with male scientists? And uh, Frank Han said, well, Dr. Um, Daphna and Dr. Ben are turning the tide. And I was very happy to see yeah. that... Um, I don't, we don't really pick guests based on, on uh, sex, gender, or anything. I just, we just try to pick interesting people, but I'm very happy to see that, uh, that people are listening yeah. and that uh, the, the guests are being appreciated. That I think that's really cool. Yeah. We've got too many, too many great people to choose from actually. <laughs> yeah. It's becoming, we're, we're becoming a victim of our own popularity, but uh, I think we have a, a lot of good guests coming up. Do you want to tease uh, of who yeah. will be our next guest? Uh, it's a, it's definitely a good problem to have. Uh, and I am honored. I love, would love to talk about our, our next guest who, who I guess speaks to what uh, Dr. Han was saying. Um, but this is uh, Dr. Diana Montoya-Williams. She's an attending neonatologist um, at CHOP. She's a clinician scientist in CHOP's policy lab and an assistant professor uh, of pediatrics um, at UPenn uh, School of Medicine. And so uh, Diana's a, ad admittedly a personal friend of mine, one of my closest friends, um, but she's doing really tremendous work on uh, the drivers of racial and ethnic in inequities in infant health outcomes. So we are really uh, excited to have her on. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to have her on. I think mostly for myself being... Um, <laughs> being very egotistic right now, but because of the fact that I'm not the most uh, knowledgeable person on that topic, and I'm very eager to talk to somebody uh, of that caliber who will be able to break it down for us and really show us where are the areas of improvements and so on and so forth. So definitely check it out. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to recording it. 
Yeah, this will be a, a special episode. Uh, I mean, I think Diana will help uh, shine some light on a lot of the things that that we can we can all be doing to support the work. Awesome. All right, Daphne. Well, that was fun. Hopefully, we don't have to record this a third time. <laughs> oh God. All right. I'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at drnikku, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at drdaphnamd. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.